my brother-in-law started to grab marketing at uni. It was going, going great guns throughout the whole degree and decided that for his final assignment, he'd use his current work at a newspaper and actually implement a TV guide. It's working. Thank you. Um, use, his final, use his final assignment to be what he was doing literally in his work. And so he worked at a newspaper and uh, implemented this thing called the TV Guide Lift Out. In fact, the one in the Chronicle that you have today is actually part of uh, what he designed and what he created and made. And, um, and anyway, he brought it back to, to the university. And, uh, and in the end, the newspaper had said it was very successful and it was actually making the money. It was doing a great job at making the money. Uh, he took it back to the uni, handed his final assignment in, and they failed him based on not meeting the, the assignment criteria. And so you would question, you would go, well, are they really in touch with what's actually authentically happening in the world? Here's something that was successful, it, it had everything going for it, everything was working, and they failed him. And so he actually walked out of uni without a degree and has gone on as a successful businessman without a uni degree, uh, interestingly enough. But, uh, but you always know, is that working now? Sweet. You always know... Uh, or you would, you would question whether the university is actually touch, in touch with reality. Um, here's another example. Take a quick and sweeping look at politics and one very strong theme comes out. That is that the members for parliament represent the people well. They've got to represent the people well. And you always know the phonies. They, those who don't represent the people well usually are tainted with sitting in their ivory tower, are working very hard but completely missing who their people are, what they're like, their needs, and just understanding the people. And there are a few things more frustrating than this. And uh, those who are right into politics and follow politicians would know, oh, I just want you to represent us well. You can hear what we need, you can hear our cries, and I want you to represent us well. I don't want you to be a sham. Um, there was a particular quote that I found, and, uh, and it was this one here. God's word exposes man. And God's nature is such that in his omniscient wisdom, that means his all-knowing wisdom, everything is laid open to the searchlight of his scrutiny. Bereft of his sham securities and, and useless defences, man stands before God as he, always, as he has always been and as he really is. The person so revealed and so exposed in his sin and in his weakness. What can he do about this guilt? So here you are standing before a holy Perfect, sinless God, all-knowing. He knows every minor, intimate detail about you. And here you are standing before him, holy and perfect. And like you would stand before a judge, shaking and quivering, and going, what the heck am I going to do here? I know I've done the wrong thing. I don't want other people to know. I certainly don't want the judge to know. You'd be shaking. You'd be quivering in your boots. As God's word does to our own souls. Such a person needs help. Even when he is purified and his pilgrimage begins, how can he hope to find the strength to continue? It's at this point that the writer of Hebrews returns to the theme of majestic importance, the presence, intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, our, he is eager to make four supreme assertions about our great high priest. He passed through the heavens. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He learned obedience and became the source of our eternal salvation. In this way we are introduced to some of the most essential aspects of the priesthood of Christ. And it's here that we actually head into, what the heck is a priest? 
And in the Old Testament, a priest had very specific qualifications. One and first and foremost was that they were actually appointed by God. You can see that, that's the uh, third one down there. He was appointed by God. A priest was not someone who got their way to power or got their way to position because they scrambled their way there and, uh, and made it themselves. A priest was very certainly and very specifically appointed by God. Another qualification of a priest is that he would be one with the people. You know, like I was talking about before, someone who actually knows and understands real-time experience. So you're actually one with the people. Like a uni lecturer needs to be one with his students in understanding what they need to understand and what they need to know and having the experience to do so. He becomes one with the people. He doesn't just become one with the uh, high and lofty ones, like the wealthy people who have it all together, seemingly. He becomes one with those people, but he also becomes one with the poor and the weak and those who have nothing and everybody in between. The third qualification is that he shows compassion. You heard back in uh, Hebrews 5, he talked about dealing gently with the wayward and the ignorant because at any point, the high priest could have done exactly the same. At any point, he could have done exactly the same. A high priest was imperfect. A high priest sinned and had weaknesses. Therefore, he could sympathize with the ignorant and wayward and deal gently with them to restore them. It's an interesting question. We talk a lot here at the project about uh, counselling. And when we actually have conversations with one another, and uh, even with people who don't know Christ, don't understand God, uh, what is the tone and how do you actually present uh, your conversation? Is it the tone of someone who says, I've got it all together, and you better get it all together too because of me, because I've got it all together? Or is it like a high priest who would actually come to somebody else and be one with them? And say, you know what, I understand exactly, I understand at least a bit of what's going on there. The temptation to sin, yeah, I've been tempted to sin. Right down at the very root, man, I've been tempted hundreds of times. And so I understand and I can sympathise with you in your sin. And that, that's because of that, I actually want to help restore you. Do you see how the same heart issues going on in them are or have been at work in you? Second thing, a high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for the sinners around him. This does away with the idea that Christians and pastors are perfect, never sinning and humbles each of us to dependence upon Christ and his dealing with our sin. Interestingly, over history, I think uh, the priest or the pastor has become like the one man that everybody needs to turn to and everybody needs to look to and everybody must follow um, uh, to be a successful Christian. And so where do people turn when they sin? They turn to their pastor. Where do people turn when, they, uh, when things go wrong in their marriage? They turn to their pastor. And so this pastor or this priest gets lifted up onto this high and exalted throne almost so that he becomes almost Jesus. And oftentimes a pastor will crumble under that pressure because he can't do it. He was never meant to do it. That was up to Jesus. It was always meant to be Jesus after he'd come. <clears throat> the overarching theme in Hebrews is that Christ comes and is the best and better mediator. He's better than the angels. He kicks the backside of the angels and now he's trying to kick the backside of all the high priests who had preceded him to be the very great high priest. Think about uh, Hebrews 1 and 2. I preached on this uh, probably two months ago. Uh, the curtain was opened on Christ, Hebrews 1 and 2. All things are placed in subjection to him and under his feet. All things. This building, the money that we have, the cars that we have, 
everything is owned by him and is be placed under subjection to him. He's crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering he endured. No other person in history ever will suffer as much as Jesus suffered. Because his suffering, and he made it through his suffering, was the most glorious. It's, uh, it's for him and by him and through him that all things exist. All things. We sit here today, this chair exists, this microphone exists, you and I exist because of Jesus. Through whom God created the world. It was through Jesus that God created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the perfect imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. Everything is held together. The concrete slabs in this building, the metal in this building is actually held together by the power of his word. And if he, for a moment, stopped thinking, if he, for a moment, stopped uh, causing the power of his word to hold all things together, it would crumble in an instant. What a huge reality. What a huge reality. And it's him that actually makes purification for sins. And it's he that sits at the right hand of the God, alive, well, and ruling and reigning in perfect sovereignty. So why is it such a big deal that Jesus is the high priest? Ask yourself that question. What, like, why does that mean that we should worship him? Why does it mean that uh, Jesus is, uh, is the only one who could take away our sin? Why couldn't all the other high priests do that? Why don't we still have high priests today, still making sacrifices for sins and, uh, and making people right again with God? Well, I think part of the reason is being able to trust his work and not wonder whether it's just some phony that a bunch of dudes happened to write about a few thousand years ago. It was that he fulfilled the criteria, not just fulfilled them, but perfectly fulfilled them. So let's see if he does that. Let's see if he actually fulfills the criteria. Here's a second reason, because throughout history, a priest or pastor has always been lifted up as the great high priest, expected to be perfect, without sin, and being able to mediate, mediate between the people and God. Now, it was like this in the Old Testament. This is the way God designed that there would be a high priest. But once Jesus came, no other man would ever be a high priest again. There never will be another high priest, because Jesus is the great high priest. It's his perfect work in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, slaying Satan, sin and death, that makes him the perfect high priest. And it means that no other high priest has to now sacrifice lambs to, uh, to make things right again with God. Jesus, first qualification, Jesus became one with the people. He didn't hold on to his right to be equal with God, but instead came to the earth in a human body, fully experiencing the human experience. Yet he did this without sinning. And I think there's actually two myths that I've thought about surrounding how we can relate to Jesus, given that he is fully human and yet without sin. Because I think when, uh, sometimes when we see perfect people, or you think somebody's perfect, you think, man, how am I ever going to be as perfect as them? I'm just going to give up now. That would be one myth that, uh, that I was thinking about. Or maybe you think that uh, because Jesus did not sin, that he wasn't tempted and that he just had this perfect existence. He never thought, ever, ever, he was never tempted to think wrong thoughts. He was never tempted to do what was wrong. 
is never tempted by Satan. And the truth is, as we heard from Sunday last week, that he was tempted numerous times throughout, throughout the Bible. And so in doing so, he becomes one with the people. He becomes fully human, the full human experience. And this is why, this is what makes him so approachable. If you look at myth number one, he didn't sin doesn't mean that he wasn't tempted. It means that he has overcome the temptation perfectly. Think about an athlete with me for a minute. An athlete is someone who, let's say a gold medal athlete. A gold medal athlete is someone who has resisted the temptations to sleep in every morning and not train. A gold medal athlete is someone who's resisted the temptation to eat Maccas and junk food whenever they feel like it and eaten a really healthy diet. They've done the hard work resisting temptation going through a bit of suffering and they actually reap this marvellous reward at the end. We don't go to the, to the athlete who, uh, who goes, oh man, I'm just, I've had enough, I'm done, uh, I'm tired, I'm stuffed, I'm sick of eating lettuce and tomato, I just want to eat junk food again. We don't go to those people and lift them up on a pedestal and go, well done, you're amazing, I look up to you, man, you're my hero. No, but you do with Jesus. Jesus resists temptation. So you do with the gold medal athlete. You lift them up and you go, man, there's some things about you I really want to be like. Your strength, your discipline to keep going and not give up. You actually lift them up on a pedestal. And so it's a myth to think that we can't actually approach Jesus because he was perfect. He was tempted and he resisted the temptation perfectly, which means that we can come and approach him. Go, man, Jesus, make me more like you. So it's, not, it's a myth to think that, you can't, uh, that he wasn't tempted. And because you're perfect, he's perfect, uh, you'll never be able to come to him. Number two, because Jesus is perfect, you'll never reach his standard, so you might as well give up trying. The truth is, that's the truth. You're never going to reach his standard. And you better stop trying on your own. And you better start trusting in the work of Jesus Christ because the work of Jesus Christ, perfectly dying, for our sin, not for his sin. He didn't have to lay down his life for his own sin. Perfectly dying uh, means that we can actually be free. And instead of working hard on our own to reach the goal of holiness and perfection like Jesus, Jesus actually says, you know what? I've done the work for you. You go and you be like me. He could make perfect sacrifice for our sin so that we would enter into eternal life where we will one day, through Jesus, through Jesus' help, become perfected. He's the great high priest who lasts forever. And so does his work in us. It will last forever and we can have confidence in that. Christ is the most compassionate of all high priests. All the high priests were compassionate to wayward people who... Uh, They'd gone way off track. They knew about God. They knew the right thing to do. They'd gone off track and they would come back and say, I just want to come back. I want to come back to following God and I want to do it really well. And the priest would go, you know what? I've, I've had wayward thoughts as well. I want to be compassionate with you. Come on back. Let's work out how to restore you. Come back to God. He would be uh, compassionate to the ignorant. Do you see Jesus being compassionate to the ignorant? Think of a time... In all of the Bible, the Gospels particularly, where Jesus is compassionate to the ignorant. What about the woman at the well? Here's a woman who is seemingly ignorant of what she's doing. 
She's had lots of different husbands because she's had a terrible sexual life. All right? And, uh, and Jesus comes to her. Does he go, woman, get your life right. Suck it up. Work it out. No, he's, he's compassionate. The woman walks away and goes and tells people, you've never met a guy like this. You should come and see him. He's Jesus. I love this man. He's amazing. He knew all about me. And he didn't hold me to contempt. And so we should go and tell, him, tell uh, all the people about Jesus. Jesus shows compassion. He's the most compassionate of all high priests. Not because he sinned, but because perfectly he's resisted temptation to sin. And so he holds up this standard and goes, come here, I want to help you hold up the standard of righteousness, of holiness. Next, uh, next qualification, he was appointed by God. The high priests were not voted in. They did not solicit their way to power. They were precisely appointed by God. So this is the high priest of the Old Testament. At any rate, listen to this, the Bible records disasters that befell those who took it upon themselves to perform high priestly duties. So there was people who were like, oh, man, look at that guy's job. Wish I had his job. Um, I think I'm just going to give it a go anyway. And so there was one guy, he went in and, uh, and he tried to do the high priestly duties of making sacrifices for sin and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and his, his name was Korah. And what happened to Korah is that the ground actually split apart beneath him and he was swallowed up. Because he tried to take the position all on his own. He wasn't appointed by God. And so this was a really important thing. God didn't just let any dude and uh, a democratic society vote someone in. You know what? I think Nathan Gilmore, he's, he looks like a good high priest. I think we'll vote him in. Who's with me? Hey, Nathan Gilmore, high priest. Hey, no. no, God appointed him to be the high priest. That was clear. That was so important. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, more perfectly than ever in any other high priest, did not solicit his way to being the great high priest. He was appointed by God at the right time. Now, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life all the way through his life, fully as a human. He had a mum and dad, and he had uh, brothers and sisters, and uh, he worked a job, and at the right time, he became the great high priest. You ever wondered why uh, Jesus tells he, he heals people, right? Shows compassion on people and heals people. And then he, uh, then he says, don't go and tell everyone about me. I've healed you, but don't go and tell hundreds of people. Most of the people went and told hundreds of people. But if you ever ask the question, why the heck would Jesus want what he's done to remain quiet? Why would he do that? It's because at the right time, he would become the great high priest and make sacrifice for sin. He didn't want that to happen too early. He didn't want lots of people to get around him and either start hating him or start loving him and make him like a Roman ruler. He didn't want that. Because at the right time, at precisely the right time, God was going to appoint him to be the sacrifice for all sins. That his life would be laid down. Uh, so Christ was appointed by God. And it says there in, uh, in the Psalms, if you look back uh, to verses 5 and 6, it says, uh, there's a couple of Psalms being quoted there. You are my son, today I have begotten you. You ever wondered what's in this name? Why would the writer to the Hebrews say, you are my son? This has nothing to do with being a high priest, does it? What's going on there? We think about it. It gets used all the time. You are my son. Son of a great... The son of a great man means status, usually automatically, in our culture. 
Consider it in a school. The principal appoints a qualified head of school and they ought to be listened to based on the qualification of the principal and the person who appointed them. You see that? So somebody gets appointed and automatically they get kudos because the principal's appointed them. Or think about it this way. Uh, Think of an example of a great leader or person who has had great influence in the world today. I thought of the, the great Australian war hero, Simpson. You know Simpson and the donkey? Imagine meeting his son. You go, oh, you're the son of Simpson? Far out. What was it like? So they automatically receive kudos. They automatically receive, uh, man, you're the son of Simpson. Because of all the work that Simpson had done. And so it is, I think, with Jesus. And this is why people either loved him or hated him. You're the son of God? Man, that's amazing. And people bowed down and worshipped. But other people went, you're the son of God? How dare you call yourself the son of God? You're just a man. Who do you think you are? And so it was really important for the writer to say, he is the son of God. The son of the most high God. He's not just a good man who roamed around on the earth for a few, uh, for maybe 30 years, 33 years. The universe was created through him. His death means the forgiveness of all sin through all time for those who willingly put their trust in his work to deal with their sin. For every person sitting here right now, his death means the forgiveness of your sin. When you stand before God, you can stand pure and right, not because of how good you are, but because of what Christ has already done. He's not just a good man. The son of God. Amazing. And here's the final part. He's the priest forever. All the other priests had their time and died, didn't they? Every other high priest is sitting in the grave right now. Not Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest forever. This means for us that he is going to last. He is right now sitting in the throne on heaven. Right now. Watching over what happens here at the project. Watching over our lives. He is right now sitting in the throne on heaven. And because he lasts forever, his work in saving us lasts forever. So when we become saved, when we become a Christian, that work continues on forever. Until one day when he comes back and it will all be perfected. When his work of salvation is started in us, we can have confidence that it will continue as we continue to repent, approaching his throne of grace bodily. He doesn't just have his heyday and then he's done. Jesus lasts forever and is right now fulfilling his priestly and kingly duties in heaven. His everlasting attribute means two things. He lived a perfect and sinless life so that he would be perfected in full humanity for salvation. And our salvation will one day be perfected when Christ comes again. You know what? When you get saved, when you become a Christian, when you follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be a nice la-di-da life. But what it means is that when things do get difficult, when the testing does come, you've got someone right there with you, leading you on because he himself has been right there before. He suffered the way no other man could ever suffer. We'll talk about what that makes for obedience. And finally, Melchizedek is mentioned at this point. Uh, he was a great high priest king in the Old Testament who God appointed as a signpost pointing forward to Jesus, the great high priest. And uh, we're not going to look too deeply into him today because later on in Hebrews, about chapter 7, 
he comes back in again and the writer talks all about Melchizedek. So rather than go there, I'm going to move right on to the very last few verses. Verses 7 to, den- verses 7 to 10. More like it. Let's read this together if you've got the Bible there. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. You ever wondered what supplications was? I've never really thought about what a supplication is. We'll find out in a minute. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, to his father. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here's, a, uh, here's an interesting question. Jesus prays, do you? Do you pray? One theologian, you do. That is good to hear. That is really good to hear. One theologian said, and this is, this is a huge call, prayerlessness, not praying, could actually be the root of all sin. Because ultimately what prayer does is bring you into dependence and submission to God. And when we don't pray, what we're ultimately saying is, you know what, I can be independent of God. I can have the name of Christian, but I can be independent of God and just do things the way I always did. And so uh, Jesus prays, and as we become more like Jesus, we actually pray. We pray. Let me uh, delve into what prayer is. Or, Or maybe some reasons why you don't pray. If you don't, what would you say your reason is? Perhaps you just don't actually know how to pray. Maybe you're a new Christian and you're just going, prayer? What, what the heck is prayer? I've never prayed out loud. This is just weird. I'm praying to someone who I can't see. It's a weird, weird sort of thing. Maybe you're actually afraid that if you pray, God might move in and uh, make you realize that what you're doing is wrong and you don't actually want to forgo whatever you're doing. You know the point sometimes where, uh, where you know what you're doing is wrong and you don't want to ask anyone if it's wrong in case they tell you it's wrong so you have to stop doing it. You know, it's really enjoyable doing the wrong thing and you're just really loving life. But you don't want to actually want to uh, ask someone if it's the wrong thing because they might bust you and pull you up and go, no, nah, you should stop. That's wrong. You shouldn't keep doing that. That's going to destroy you. Uh, maybe that's why you don't pray because your conscience is too, too uh, at work. Perhaps you misunderstand the will of God and are afraid that if you pray and you don't get what you want, God will disappoint you. Don't have to have a show of hands today, but you might have actually thought about praying and going, God, you haven't answered me. What's going on? You're disappointing me, God. What's happening? I asked for this. You said you're going to fulfill all my desires. What's going on, God? (laughs) Maybe you misunderstand the will of God. Maybe you misunderstand Christ and his ability to sympathize with you and your weakness and actually help you to change. Maybe you don't actually understand that Jesus Christ himself being tempted in every way that we're tempted means that we can actually approach him. doesn't mean that he stands far off and is like this superhuman uh, superman who no one can actually relate to. You know, I thought about Superman. No one can relate to Superman. He keeps his distance, except with Lois Lane, right? He sort of starts this relationship, but then he leaves and it's all over. Um, but Superman, he keeps his distance from people because he's perfect. He's superhuman. Man, Jesus isn't like that. Because of his temptation, because he's suffered and endured through the temptation, 
He's most approachable. He understands you in your weakness and he wants you to come to him. Prayer. Perhaps you are proud and prefer to do things all on your own. Interesting thing with being proud and, and thinking you're doing it on your own is that you're not doing it on your own. <laughs> you know that scripture in Hebrews that says, all things are held together by the power of his word. When I think, I'm going out to do my word today and it's just going to go sweet and I do not pray, I don't think about God, I'm just going to get on with my day. What you don't realise that in getting on with your day, it doesn't happen unless Jesus is holding it all together. So you're not on your own anyway. So you might as well talk to, the, uh, talk to Jesus, uh, who is the person who holds it all together. Perhaps you're lazy and you need your soul awakened to your real dependence on God for all things. Ryder mentions two things. Prayers, which I've read, is uh, communication with God. We communicate all the time, and this in itself is an unbelievable thing. The fact that we can pray to God and talk to God is unbelievable. Perfect in holiness. Righteous, always doing what's right. And we get to talk to Him. That's amazing. What about supplication? I looked up what supplication was. This is an attitude of prayer, and it is often used throughout the Bible in relation to bowing or kneeling before God in submission, humbly and earnestly seeking after or asking, or crying out to God for help. Don't have to have a show of hands again, but I wonder how many people sit here and would say that, yeah, I've offered up supplications to God. I've heard of older men, and, uh, and I've admired this about them, but I've heard of older men who've, um, who've, who've died, and in their office, a particular person, they walked into his office, and they'd never realised before that because they'd never actually come to that side of his desk. But here beside his desk... Was, uh, was his worn little patches in the carpet. Because every day he would go to work and he would get down on his knees and that, like, he'd have the same place every day, get down on his knees and he'd be praying, offering up supplication to the Lord. And so you get the idea, and I think, I think in uh, Western Christian culture this has been lost a bit. Like you just get to talk to God, he's your friend. Yeah, yeah, he is your friend. But man... God's, Jesus' prayers were answered because of his reverence. So how often do you kneel down, lift up your hands and cry out, God, I need you. I'm desperate here. Or do you sit down in your armchair, turn on the TV and say, Oprah, I'm desperate here. I need you. Dr. Phil, I'm desperate here. I need you. And I'm not saying that they don't have some good ideas. But what if the God of the universe understood you and you came and you bowed on your knee? Some reasons for prayer. Getting close to the end here. Relationship. Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father as sons. You know in that uh, special prayer that some of us may know by rote, you know it was always, it's always prayed, often prayed uh, in particular uh, services, our Father who is in heaven. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe invites us to come to him as children and say, Dad, Father, it's an incredible thing. More incredible than your earthly dad. And more incredible than the earthly dad you never had. Father. So it's actually about relationship. It's not about a discipline, about doing something over and over and over. Because that's what the Bible tells you to do. Partly about that, but not mostly. Mostly it's about a relationship. 
Secondly, I think it's about character. The willingness to bend the knee in humility and seek help is about your character. If your pride says, I will never bend the knee, I will never bow my knee to God. Maybe it's a question of your character. Third, I think it's about faith. And I purposely haven't said because God answers all your prayers. Because I think he does, but it's just not in the way that we expect him to. I purposely haven't said that a reason for prayer is that you can get what you want. That is a secondary thing to what I think are the primary motivations for prayer. Faith. Faith is built in God as we trust God that his answer in his time will always be the best. Yes. Yes, son. Yes, daughter. I'd love to give you that. No, son. No, daughter. Now is not the right time. Or later. Yes, son. I'll give it to you, but later. My time when I know it's right. Or maybe prayer is like a piñata. God's your piñata. He's hanging there. And prayer is your beating stick. God, give me what I want. God, I want good weather for my swimming carnival. God, give me a new car. Mine's dying. It's like a piñata. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. It's not meant to be that way. Pride. God is all about me and I deserve his help because I have a lot of potential, so you better help me. It's about me. Or maybe the third one. My will be done. We'll come to it in just a moment about Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was where he was about to die and knowing that his impending death was coming up very, very soon and knowing the pain and the agony, he prayed and he got down on his knee to offer up supplications to God said, God, please take this away from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And we'll get to a really special thing that happened in that in a moment. So a question for prayer in your own life is this. What's the purpose of your life? If the purpose of your life is to be happy and to have what you want, then prayer becomes a beating stick and a piñata like God. If your purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him, then you move spiritually from the first, I want what I want to be happy, to the second, God, I want what you want. And I want you to be glorified and magnified. So suddenly your prayers actually start to align with what he wants. And as your prayers align with what he wants, you start seeing them answered left, right and centre. You realise that you're now the happiest you could ever be because your life doesn't actually revolve around you. Letting God's will be done is not less painful for us, it's not less difficult for us, but it's always most satisfying for us. That's hard to see in the difficulty. It's hard to see in the testing or the temptation or the trying. doesn't make it less painful. But man, is it more satisfying. Knowing that God, I trust you and I'm going to let your will be done. His eyes see far further into your life and into your future than you'll ever see for, for your good. What we don't know is that allowing this suffering or testing in your life to occur will be for your good and his glory. If you trust him. So practically, what does it look like? 
Well, practically, I hope that it means that we actually become a people who pray. And not just pray at a church service on a Sunday, and not just pray in the morning when you wake up, say, God, thank you for a beautiful day. See you later, I'm good to go. But there will be people who pray. And interestingly enough, the desire to pray starts by praying. <laughs> because it's, it's motivated by love. I could give you a whole list of things and suggestions, which I'd love to do right now, uh, for how to pray and ideas for, uh, for when to pray. But I think at the root, if all you do is take that list away and go, all right, I'm going to try this, this, this and this, dang, it doesn't work. What's going on? Because I don't think it's motivated by love for God. So God, show me what you really like. Show me what I'm really like so that I actually realize nothing in my life works unless I depend on God. Uh, John Piper, I'm going to show you a clip right now. John Piper, uh, it's, it's a two-minute clip about prayer. And I would call this conversational prayer. So this is the conversational prayer that would just happen day by day. Little things of life. I'll play it for you and then uh, we'll keep going. My pastoral plea and this is my prayer for this message, is that we would be a praying people like this all through the day. Convey your heart to God over and over. Let it be the way you begin and end everything. Now, this requires a huge spiritual consciousness, which is what we're praying toward. Every email... Begins and ends with prayer. Every TV show, very important. You start praying when you watch it, you end praying when you watch it, and you may never watch it again. <laughs> Every car ride, start prayer, end prayer. Had a missionary friend, worked in Afghanistan, said if you didn't do this, you had a wreck. Every time. Not quite that bad in America, but it's a good idea. Every phone call, start with prayer, and with prayer. I'm talking five-second prayers here. God, help me. I want to be an honor to you on this phone call. It's going to be tough. Bang, that's all. You start it, you end it with prayer. Every conversation starts with prayer, ends with prayer. Every shower starts with prayer, ends with prayer. Every night's rest starts with prayer, ends with prayer. Every meal starts with prayer, ends with prayer. Sometimes out loud, doesn't matter. Everything you read starts with prayer, ends with prayer. Get on my running machine in the morning three times a week. Put on some preacher from the internet. Pray, God, guard me from error. <laughs> Teach me the truth. Correct me. Shape me. Mold me. Boom. I'm into running and listening. But not without him. Nothing's automatic here. Be in communion with God continually. My wife, Noelle, there she is complains to me that when I call her on my cell phone, I don't hang up. And so I put it back in my pocket with the phone on. And she, she's listening to all these things that are happening. And I, I think I discovered why, Noel. You can turn it off at the top here, but when you turn the machine off, the phone stays on. I didn't realize that until just yesterday. So I'll try not to make that mistake. So I'm totally in agreement that I shouldn't leave my phone on and make my wife listen to me for the rest of what I'm doing. However, 
God likes it when you leave your phone on. Not a, not a criticism of the will. You ought to turn your phone off when you're calling your wife. But when you're calling God, just don't ever push the red button. Just leave it on green all the time. You listen to everything. That's okay. You just, everything becomes prayer. That would be the way to live. Pray without ceasing means leave the green button pushed all the time. Have one of these phones. You can turn it off. It stays on. Isn't that cool? I wish my life were more like that. Uh, what it's like to pray, pray unceasingly. You ever seen that, um, that scripture and gone, how the heck do you do that? Well, in asking that question, let's start. <laughs> Just start. Thinking every moment of every day, pray. Supplication. There's going to be times when it's just going to be conversational. God, help me in this situation. As I walk into my boss's office, God, give me the right words to say. Give me ears to listen and learn and discern. As I walk into a classroom, God, help me to speak the right words, your words. As I'm having an argument with my wife, God, humble me. Short, quick prayers all day long. There's also going to be times of supplication. You want to break through a particularly difficult point in your life. Come on your knees before God, in your bedroom, on the edge of a hill, wherever it is that God, you, you can do it, get on your knees before God and cry out. Supplication. Praying the Bible, another great idea. Psalm 113 verse 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. This is a prayer. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. John 17 is the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for people. And right now, you actually know that he's praying for you. Jesus' prayer was for people not to be taken out of the world, but while remaining in the world to be protected from the enemy. And then Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And we can pray this prayer. Mark 14.36, Abba, that means Daddy. It's a really affectionate name. Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. You could stop this thing right where it's at and I wouldn't have to die and everything would be okay and everything would be perfect. Take it away from me, God. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. If you were to end every request of your prayer like that, God, not what we will, but what you will. Doesn't that release God from being your servant to being God? He becomes God again. Oh, okay. He gets to make the decision anyway. And I trust him in that. Let your will be done. Interestingly, was Jesus answered? Just because Jesus went and died, does that mean he wasn't answered? Does that mean God just went, oh, I missed that. Sorry, Jesus. Oh, too late. No, no, no. Because it keeps going in Luke and it says he was given the help he needed to get through it. Luke 22 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus' prayer was answered, not in the way that he asked particularly, but God gave him what he needed. Pray with others. Pray with others. This, this helps to define community. A community of believers prays together. They hear of a need, let's pray about it. They hear of a triumph, let's pray about it. 
But just in conversation, why don't we pray to finish? This characterises biblical community. Praying in solitude, closing the door, in quiet, opening the Bible, praying. Praying for others. Prayer for others strengthens your faith and encourages those around. And here's where we'll finish. Ultimately, prayer says, God, I want to obey you. God, I want your will to be done and I want to submit to that will. So in verses uh, 9 and 10, somewhere around verse 8 to 10 in Hebrews chapter 5, it says, Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. Jesus always obeyed and this was most important to him, even as a little child when he was apparently lost. He was in the temple, in his father's house, learning and speaking with the teachers. He was always about obeying his heavenly dad. And as we learn to become more like Jesus, man, that becomes our joy and our delight. I'm going to bend my will and bend my knee so that it's no longer my will that's done, but instead, God, it's your will that's done. And the obedience can start right now. John Calvin said this. He did this. He was obedient to the point of death for our benefit to give us the instance and the pattern of his own submission. Say, God, I'm willing to go to death in obedience to you. If we want the obedience of Christ to be of advantage to us, we must copy it. And so we're going to come and we're actually going to uh, pray together to finish, funnily enough. And my hope is that as you've, uh, as you've seen who Jesus really is, Jesus isn't a sham. He's not just some good guy walking around on the earth. He's the son of God. He endured everything. He endured temptation. He endured suffering to the point of death. And he even conquered that. And so he invites every person to come. Whether you know him, if you don't, now's an opportunity to know him. He invites you, if you do know him, come. Come and be nearer to me. Come and be closer to me. And a way to do that is through prayer. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, Let's pray together. Jesus, you are God. Jesus, you are fully human and fully God. And you right now sit enthroned in heaven ruling and reigning, holding everything together by the power of your word. You're very active right now, God. And so I pray that we would not sit here proud, that we would not sit here as independent beings, but instead, like you, Jesus, we would come in complete submission to the Father. That our attitude, the attitude of the way we speak, the attitude of the way we pray, would be that of God... Ah, here's my desire. But God, let your will be done, not mine. That God, in our lives, there would be great joy and great delight in following you. In and through every moment of testing and trial and suffering. That our prayer to you would be conversational. That our prayer to you would be in reverence, bowing our knees, crying out to you as a holy and righteous God. That our prayer to you would be right throughout the day, that our prayers to you would be gospel-centered and not me-centered. And that ultimately, God, you would give us a deeper dependence upon you and love for you. 
So we love you, God. We honor you today. Amen.